Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Tropical MBA Podcast. Thanks for joining us. If I sound a little different, it's because I'm speaking into my telephone on the side of the road as I'm heading back to Austin, Texas, driving directly into a ball of sun. (laughs) The summer in Europe's over um, and Austin is hotter than ever. I won't be here for long, though. I'll be trading the Austin heat for the heat of Thailand, specifically heading to DCBKK with hundreds of listeners this pod along with today's guest. So let's introduce her. Her name is Lucy Bella Simpkins, and we are today celebrating her YouTube channel hitting 10 million subscribers. On the back end of this incredibly powerful YouTube channel, she's served over 20,000 students, helping them improve their English skills. She's built a team of 15, and they've well eclipsed the seven-figure revenue mark. Check out the business over at EnglishWithLucy.com. In today's conversation, we're going to cover all different aspects of how she's put together this incredible empire. You know, often I think the difference between a good business and a great business is finding a reliable and repeatable source of new customers. And with the English with Lucy YouTube channel, and now that's branched out into other channels, as you'll hear, Lucy has certainly done that. You'll hear how she started her brand as a passion project, something she was doing on the side as well as many of the mistakes she's made along the way. So perhaps you can avoid some of those, like partnering with the wrong people. We'll also discuss how she manages that maker versus manager schedule because she's not only a creative, but also she's running the business itself too and making this incredible content. So, so much to discuss in today's episode. So let's get right into it with Lucy. So my name is Lucy Bella Simpkins, and I run one of the largest English teaching YouTube channels out there called English with Lucy. And we are getting very, very close to hitting 10 million subscribers, which is really exciting. I started in 2016, and now I work with my husband, Will, and we run an online course business. Can you give us a sense for the operation, just so as we talk about some of the details of your story? People can put it into context. Maybe where's the office building? Where do y'all live? How many people are involved in this organization and how do people flow through it? Well, in true tropical MBA fashion, we are location independent. So (laughs) (laughs) we work from home. If we didn't have a cat and a dog, we probably would move around a lot more. To go back a few years, my husband was a farmer. And what I thought would happen with my life is that I would be a farmer's wife with a YouTube channel as a side hustle, hopefully to bring in a bit more money when when the yields weren't great on the farm. <laughs> but, you know, like as it often happens on farms, we had family problems and my husband made the really difficult decision to leave the farm. And we started working together two years ago and we hired a team and the rest has been history really. Before, it's like, BC and AD, but before Will, BW, it was me 
on my own with the occasional freelancer, like the odd editor and things like that. Uh, now we're a team of 15. So that's me. Obviously, I run the creative side of things and I'm obviously the face of everything. Will does the finances. Then we have our operations manager. We have seven English teachers that all specialize in different areas like pronunciation, grammar, course activity creation. We have three editors as well. Everyone is completely remote. Oh, we also have some admin assistants, customer service and things like that. But yeah, everyone's completely remote. We actually have never met anyone in person yet, but we're planning our first team retreat next April, which is really exciting. So you have 15 team members. Can you tell us, give us a sense of the magnitude of the business in terms of revenues or customers or throughput, something that will give us a sense for the scope of what we're talking about as we go into the details? Yeah. So it's a seven-figure company. We make seven figures a year. And we have over 20,000 students. Now, they're not on subscription plans. They sign up and take, you know, they pay for each course as it comes. Uh, but we have lots and lots of students that have taken two to sometimes 14 courses with us. We started off producing monthly challenges. So a video released or a video lesson and activities released every day over 30 days. And then we, once we had that, we built the revenue up, we hired a curriculum designer, we hired some more teachers, we hired our operations manager, and we started making these really beefy and amazing level courses, B1, B2, C1 English. We've just finished releasing our first cohort of our last course for a while, which is the C1 program. And all of our marketing is done on our social media channels. So actually, not necessarily... All of our lead generation is done through our social media channels, like our YouTube channel. What's the difference between lead generation and marketing? So lead generation is getting people's email address for us because 80% of our core sales come through email marketing. Interesting. Whereas I've experimented with direct selling on YouTube, you know, saying, hey, join my course. The link is in the description box. Add code save 10% off, it just doesn't work as well. You need to build up a relationship with our with our students. I think they're really searching for, you know, they've got so many options out there. They're looking to choose a teacher that's going to take them through a whole journey of learning a language. And it's not some sort of split decision they make in a moment. You really need to nurture them and get them to that point where they, they want to take the next step with you. Are you nurturing them via email or is it primarily with their relationship with your personality, like the parasocial relationship, as I've heard it called recently. Yeah. Like just watching so many of your videos that I get that first couple emails and I'm like, well, obviously I would choose Lucy's course versus somebody else's because I know her. Or is there a dedicated email relationship building sequence? The reason I ask is I think so many of us just drop the ball on the email relationship building part. It's a lot easier to do whatever that creative front end is that a lot of us have on the business. Yeah. So I think I I do various things. I obviously work really hard on building the relationship or this parasocial relationship that you mentioned. It sounds Um, cynical. (laughs) It does. It sounds really nasty. It sounds like it's a (laughs) one-way relationship. You like me, I don't like you back. It's not that at all because you kind of end up really loving your followers as a community rather than individually. So it's, it's not one way. But yeah, so we work really hard or I work really hard on building that relationship and really showing as much of my personality as possible on the social media content, trying to inject humor as much as I can, trying to give little snippets of my personal life, but not too much. I've, you know, did some vlogging before and I decided that was way too much personal info to give out there. And then 
we came up with a system which really, really worked well for us. Basically, with every single video we publish, and we've done this since about 2020, we create a free PDF for every single lesson. And I started off doing this before I had a team. So every time I wrote a lesson script, I would then turn it into this really lovely PDF with a quiz. It used to take ages. And we'd set up an individual automation on ConvertKit every single time I released a video. So we have hundreds of them now. But boy, did they convert. I mean, they got just brought in the most insane amount of leads. Not necessarily super high quality. So if you heard my email list size, you'd probably think, oh my word. But, you know, they're not as engaged as most other lists because we get so many people coming in simply for the free content. So we started off doing that. So people who have signed up to the email list are constantly every week getting these free PDFs anyway. So we're building up that relationship in that way. But when they join, they do go down a, it's kind of, it starts off as a nurturing sequence, then it um, ends up being kind of pushing them towards an offer, a one-time offer that we've got organized via deadline funnel. So it does expire at the end of it. And that works really, really well because you build up the relationship and then you give them the opportunity to buy something at a, a really awesome price. One of the things I'm curious about is, have you ever heard of this concept of like, there's these books like Essentialism and The One Thing. And the concept is, is like, you kind of organize your business around your superpower and you just do it over and over and over again. And, you know, from the outside, it's obvious what your superpower is as a communicator, a teacher, and as a persona on YouTube. But now I'm talking to a CEO, someone who's hiring, firing, talking about these complicated details within the operation of a business. How do you think about the split between those two sides of your personality and how do you manage it? What an interesting question. And I feel it deserves a really good answer and I hope I can give it. Um, It's something that I'm grappling with at the moment because the nature of teaching is quite altruistic, isn't it? You know, you want to educate, to, to do it for the love of doing it. And it often rubs people up the wrong way if you also make a lot of money from it. And I would say that I have two sides of my personality. You know, my degree was marketing. I have a degree in marketing. I was always fascinated by it. And I always wanted to go into marketing specifically for beauty products. My dream job, if you'd asked me when I was 18, was I want to work for L'Oreal in the marketing department. (laughs) Not what I'd want now, but it's definitely what I wanted back then. I stumbled into teaching, as many travelers do. The degree I chose was um, in London. I didn't want to live in London, but it was the only degree that would give me the opportunity to spend as much time as possible in Spain because I always absolutely loved languages and specifically learning Spanish. And I wasn't super happy in England. I wasn't really enjoying life that much. I wanted a way out. So I did my Erasmus semester in Madrid, and then I was meant to stay on and do a year-long placement year in a marketing agency in Spain. But when I got there, the agency had shut down. Um, It was just after recession. It seemed to have a little bit of a delayed hit on Spain. And it was really scary because I thought, oh my word, you know, I'm too late to re-enroll back in university. What do I do? So I ended up teaching English for the rest of the year. And that's where I discovered this other side to myself. And I felt like these two sides went hand in hand so beautifully. I've never been a grammar genius or somebody who is really, really into the intricacies of grammar and vocabulary and things like that. Instead, I've discovered that I'm really good at communicating, at taking difficult topics, digesting them myself, and then making them 
really easy for students to understand. So it's almost like I'm there with them. I've been through it with yeah. them. I've learned a language too. I know how to do this. I know how hard it is. Let me try and make this a little bit easier for you. There's this YouTube series where a virtuoso describes a concept to five different age levels. Oh. Have you ever seen this series? No, and it's like, I'd like to. There's this, um, this really great musician, a young guy from in the UK, what's his name? Uh, anyway, the title of the video is something like explain harmony to a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Now explain harmony to a high school student. And the last one is like, he explains harmony to like a jazz great, you know, like a <laughs> world-class pianist. And um, I think that this is worth, I wanted to underline it a little bit because it's part of what makes you special. And it's also something that society doesn't often encourage is this amateur love of something that the experts sort of want to reserve for themselves and hold in this in the academy or in other places of high esteem where there's something about the amateur love of something to bring it to the people that the experts aren't often great at. And so it, it seems like that's at least part of your project is unlocking what had been locked into the academy and making it more interesting and accessible to normal people. Definitely, because sometimes when someone has spent years and years studying a subject and, you know, they've got a PhD in it, sometimes there can be a bit of a disconnect between people, them and then people who are just starting out or people who aren't academic and will never be academic and won't be able to memorize grammar rules and things like that. You have to find a way to teach them in another way. And I found this out with myself when I was trying to learn um, how to teach English because I was really struggling with retaining grammar rules. And I was feeling quite embarrassed because so many of my students, they'd taken a very academic approach to learning English and they knew all of the grammar terms better than I did. So I started watching YouTube videos to try and see if I could kind of copy what another teacher is saying and just regurgitate it. And I just found the videos, most of the videos, fairly boring, fairly sterile, and they were treating the camera as if it were a classroom of students in an academy rather than understanding that one-on-one relationship that you feel you have when you watch a YouTuber, because I was consuming a lot of YouTube content at the time. And so my marketing brain and my teaching brain went together. And I just thought, I really think I could deliver this information in a more engaging way. And that's where it started out. And I don't think I've lost that. I think we've kept that going. That's fascinating how those that, that all comes together in a moment. Like, this is it, you know, like this for that. It's often yeah. like a this for that <laughs> kind of thing. I'm curious, like this kind of, you know, you had the the before will, after will sort of thing. There's this like, this was like a popular YouTube channel and now it's become like a brand in this business. What were some indications as you were getting momentum with the viewership that this had business potential? Like, how did you think about it? Because in those early days, I'm assuming you're like, oh, I'm going to change the title. I'm going to do this one. This could be a banger. People are really going to love this video. <laughs> but what was that like business part of it? that you were like, maybe this could be something beyond, say, taking in YouTube revenues? Yeah, because it started off making, I mean, I was 21 when I started it. And it took, in the first year, I hit 100,000 subscribers. In the second year, a million. So it really quickly took off. And I was making, at 23, more money than any any other 23-year-old I knew. Revenue, ad revenue was good. I mean, it never really reflects the amount of effort that you put into a video, especially with the demographic of people 
learning English are not necessarily the demographics that ad, ad payers would pay really high rates for. And then I started getting sponsorships. And, you know, some of these sponsorships were five figures. They were like monthly contracts of five figures. It was pretty exciting. But I always had it in the back of my head. This could be more. I just don't know who to ask for help because it was me on my own. And I wasn't being particularly productive. I look back at those years and there was a lot of like moping. <laughs> there was a Why lot of moping. Uh, I wasn't particularly happy. I was felt very, very lonely. And um, I was with Will at this point. And farm life is hard. And he was in a particularly difficult farming situation where he was working not 24-7, but probably 18-7. <laughs> like long, long days, no chance to travel, no chance to go away. And, you know, my personality, core part of my personality was the fact that I spoke Spanish and I loved traveling and I loved meeting lots of different people. And suddenly I was tied to this farm where I couldn't really do any of that anymore. But I also loved Will too much to ever leave it. It was felt like a catch for And a lot of money coming in. So there must have been pressure to see where that was coming from or to explore it. And it wasn't coming from the ground, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. So I I made some decisions which they were not right. I don't regret anything necessarily because I'm really happy with how it's turned out. But I took on a manager because my thing was I didn't know how to hire. I mean I'm 24, 25, who who hires at that age? Mm -hmm. And um I took on a manager who I hoped would help me build a course business. And my idea was to build a pronunciation course. And eventually what happened was he put in a certain amount of money to own 20% of this course business that we set up together. But then he realized he didn't actually know anything about making courses either. So it'd be better if we take on the help of another influencer business that, I mean, it's called Genflow. They help influencers build brands. So they then took a profit cut as well and helped us create this course. And long story short, I was just really dissatisfied with this course. It wasn't at all what I wanted to create. And then even worse, I started talking with other course creators in my situation, English teachers with courses, and they'd managed to build much better courses all on their own. They owned 100% of it. And I started to feel real FOMO, I felt a lot of regret and a lot of anger with myself that I had kind of tried to take the easy route and it hadn't worked out. At that same point, I started getting a lot of backlash online as well. Suddenly I felt like people noticed me and decided they didn't like me. And I've always been a very neutral person. I never really felt like a, an unlikable person. So it was quite quite shocking for me to <laughs> have suddenly have lots of people be very vocal about how terrible a person I was. When they would critique you online, was there a grain of truth in the critique that hurt you? Or was it simply vitriol and jealousy? Oh, no, there was definitely truth in it. Some of it was blown out of proportion. But for example, I made a video on um, Northern versus Southern accents. And the way I delivered, so I have a Southern English accent, and they're often favored by the media like BBC. Um, and people with Northern accents have really struggled to get their rightful place on TV. And yeah, they often feel judged. And so the way I delivered this video was just off and I got called out for it. So there was truth in that. And there was another video that I was called out for called 12 Words You Should Avoid Mispronouncing If You Want to Sound Professional. And there was a lot of 
attention on social media at that time about what is professional and unprofessional. Is it actually racist to say that someone is unprofessional? Things like that. Mm. Someone called me out for it. And um, there were grains of truth. Then, unfortunately, what happens is when it starts off with something that's right, often there's a pile on and then things get blown out of proportion. But I learned a lot from that experience. But yeah, I was just feeling so low and lonely and alone. And like I'd wasted this huge opportunity. I mean, at the time I had like 4 million subscribers and I just felt like I hadn't taken advantage of the opportunity. And I was meeting creators with like a 10th of the following I had making four times as much revenue as I was. And it just felt rubbish. But there's nothing like a humbling experience to spur you on, is there? (laughs) What happened? (laughs) So professional life was rubbish. Personal life hit the fan, basically. Can I swear? Sure. That's great. (laughs) Hit the farm, really. And um, yeah, it just got to a point where everything I'd worked for was not coming to much. And Will, my husband, had worked for 10 years on this farm, you know, not taking any real money from it. And suddenly a spanner was thrown in the works there. And we both looked at each other and thought, what is all of this about? Like this is, we were so, we were at our bottom. And so we made the really difficult decision to leave the farm, to move away. I was, luckily we had quite a lot of cash because I hadn't done, I mean, didn't have an opportunity to even do anything with all this money I was earning from YouTube. (laughs) So we decided to move away, buy a house, start a business and just nothing could be worse than the situation we were in. Well, that's dramatic, but it couldn't have got much worse professionally. So we might as well give it a try on our own. And we had these really amazing ideas and we joined, I think you spoke to John Ainsworth on your podcast the other day um, or a couple of weeks ago. We joined his, actually, it all started with the DC. (laughs) John Ainsworth runs data-driven marketing and talks a lot about funnels and how to take people who are interested in your brand and turn them into customers. Yeah, but I met him at the Dynamite Circle London event. Oh, yeah. Because I was... I was reaching out to a couple of people that I trusted and they, I was like, how do I meet other people who do what I do, who are nice and friendly and open? And Shona said, the London Dynamite Circle crowd is where it's at. So I went to the first event. There I met John. We joined his funnel program and the rest, it just flew from there. It was having a support network of people, having something to check in with each week. The accountability was huge as well. Like every week we wanted to come back and have show this small group of other people in a similar situation that we were taking this seriously and we were, you know, we implemented what we said we'd do. What was it about that message, Lucy? Because the way you're framing it up is like, oh man, like I got this kind of not great relationship with the agent. I'm super under monetized. What was that was missing? I know you're saying other people around the circle, but there must have been some sort of realization about the method that you weren't employing. That I had just taken on the wrong people. My the manager is a fantastic manager. He manages influencers. He negotiates the best brand deals. He puts them in contact with the right people, but he's not a course creator. And he has no idea about what students need. And then the same with Genflow. They are great at building brands and apps for fitness influencers, for people with clothing brands but they'd never done education in English. And it just didn't go deep enough. And I felt, oh, I'm in too deep. I've got all of these people on board that don't know what I need and what my students need. 
And I feel like I need the opportunity to build this myself from the ground up. So I bought um, the manager out of the business. We ended at the end of our term with Genflow. And then that was the perfect opportunity to then start with Will. I, th- I think it's interesting. Like, I know in my experience, sometimes, you know, you bring on, like, say, a manager. And it's almost like it feels to me like placing a bet on a piece of felt. Like, you know, yeah. it's kind of a, a little bit off of my plate now and a little bit onto theirs. And we'll sort of see what happens. And it can almost be terrifying to be like, oh, actually, that was my bet. This is my company. I've got to change all this. And often it takes like a backup against the wall moment. I'm curious as to where you got the kind of bravery, or at least you brought that responsibility back in house and made a strong move. Why? Because we launched our first course and it just didn't make that much money. I didn't really have anything to compare it with because I wasn't in contact with lots of other creators. But I think everyone was a bit underwhelmed by the performance. And then I was really unhappy with, we didn't have a sales page. We didn't even have email marketing set up. I had to set that up on my own. Like There was just nothing. I think they were used to creators making a video saying, hey, my new clothing line's dropped. Yeah. Bye, bye, bye. But it doesn't work like that with online courses. And the bravery came from, I mean, you're right about placing a bet because I felt I am not capable of managing, setting up and managing a company. So the next best thing I can do is get people in that do know and hopefully they'll do it. But I learned my lesson. That's not how it's done. And it was only when, you know, we started hiring ourselves and building things up bit by bit, but quite fast and really applying ourselves 100% uh, that it started working. It helps to have a flop. I mean, that (laughs) often is what spurs these kinds of hard moments because, you know, it's all talk until you actually can see a falsifiable result. And then that as the primary owners, we often bear the burden of the failure. And I've definitely been spurred on by that. The trick is, is like, how can you create a falsifiable moment faster if you have one of these relationships where the leash can get too long and the talk can go on? Yeah, you need to... I think I've been going to lots of events. Like I was invited to the Founders Forum the other day, which was amazing. You know, it was just people who've started the most amazing businesses like Babbel and Duolingo and all these things. And what I noticed about them is they go from zero to one so quickly. If they have an idea, they just get it off the ground. There's no faffing around. And we faffed. We faffed and faffed and faffed. (laughs) And the people who get things done, they might only get like one in 10 projects might take off. Yeah. But... They do 10. Yeah, they do 10 and they do them fast. Yeah. And they just get that minimum viable product out there so they can test it and then they can rule it out because ruling something out is just as powerful as making something blow up, I think. Because otherwise it's going to be this niggly little idea in your head. Then you'll see someone else do it and think, oh, damn it, could it have worked for me? Just test it out. But yeah, a flop. I mean, the flop was embarrassing. It is embarrassing. It's not cool to be one of the biggest, most followed people in in the game in English education and then to have, (laughs) you know, not that great a course out there. Um, But my word, did it spur us on. And also it's made us really focus on the quality of our courses. You know, we hire curriculum designers and experts to come in and make sure, you know, linguists to fact check everything. You know, everything is watertight now because I know how embarrassing and how you can't sleep at night if you've got something out there that you're not really that happy with. 
Hey, if you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You can click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. And that's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking. One of the hardest parts for founders in a business is developing repeated and continual interest in the problems they solve. And your YouTube channel is just a magnificent response to that challenge. And there's a lot of creators out there building, not necessarily the magnitude, but similar progress along an entertaining, engaging, sort of top of funnel, as we call it. I'm Curious, like a lot of us that listen to the podcast are mostly on the operational side of businesses. That's how we got involved in business. Do you see opportunities for partnerships between creators and operators that could work out better than the one you're describing? I'm just wondering because so many operators really struggle with getting new customers. And so many creators struggle with the prospect of having to run a a business. I'm wondering, I just feel like there could be more partnerships out there between creators and operators. Definitely. Definitely. It's so weird that you've brought this up because I've had so many conversations about this exact topic recently. Lots of people with startups that are performing well that suddenly realize that most of their traffic is coming through paid advertising, want to create a more organic funnel. And... um they're saying, you know, how do, do I hire someone? Can I make a faceless YouTube channel? Like, how do I know if I hire a creator, they won't see it's going really well and go off on their own. And yeah, partnerships, I think, could be a fantastic opportunity. And I'm seeing lots of creators. And by seeing, I mean, I am one, now taking a different approach to sponsorship. So I don't take sponsorships anymore on my channel. Instead, I've invested in a company that is you know, the one thing that I can't offer, which is tutoring. Um, and so we invested in a company called Languatalk, which is an online tutoring platform, and we promote that. And it, it makes sense because we are then, we have equity in something. We also really believe in it, want to promote it. We're also creating content for them. And partnerships like that, I think, are going to become more and more popular because it's mutually beneficial. I love that. That's super cool. How do you cut a deal like that? Walk me through it because I've never done something like that. I would love to, you know, I just um, sold a sponsorship and then I was like reading about the company. It's like they have 60 employees. They had like 30 employees last year. You know, they did all these amazing things and I can see why they're amazing. I would love to partner with them, but I don't know how those conversations go down or I've never been a minority partner in a business. So can you explain how that works? I'm, an, I'm assuming you're minority, but maybe you could let us know how it works. Yeah, we're minority. Um, so this one came to us through another creator who's also involved. And I think they were approached by the company uh, that were interested in in taking this approach, which is a very kind of open-minded approach, I think. I was really impressed with the way the company then reached out in that way. And then I think they were thinking about, you know, who are big names in this business, who would also, who's also really interested in marketing and, and ways of getting that name out there. Um, and they came to me, we work quite well together. So that's how we carved that one out. But it's something that I'd love to do again. And it's also 
Will and I have some ideas for some other businesses or other products we'd like to create that would be separate to English with Lucy. And we would definitely consider that kind of approach because it's one of the best ways to A, get someone in that truly believes in the business. And then once they're in it, it's, it's that level of like engagement and investment that you just, you can't pay for with a sponsorship deal. Yeah. But yeah, if I were you, I would reach out and talk to them about it. I think there's always an opportunity. And especially if you bring over other kind of case studies of, of ways it's worked well for people. That's really interesting. I'm really curious if you could walk us through your creative schedule and how right now you're supported by a team and how in the future you imagine a team could support you. Because when I go to your YouTube channel, it's still you showing up, being engaged, you know, knowing the information, making this great creative product. I was in a podcast recording session the other day by myself where it was something I had written. You know, I didn't know if it was good. And like, I kind of redid it a couple of times. You know what I mean? And like, I just feel like, God, I've been doing this for 10 years. And I just don't feel like I have the best process yet. And I'm still I'm just so glad you feel like that too. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so validated now. <laughs> What's your maker schedule is the way that startup kids talk about it. Tell me about, tell me about maker schedule. Okay. So... YouTube for the past year has been slightly on the backbone. It's been something we've been maintaining rather than really spending a lot of time on because we've created our three 12-week English courses. And each one of those courses has the equivalent of 65 full-length YouTube videos in them. Wow. I know. <laughs> it was an intense period. I'm surprised the courses are video. I guess... Once they're into video, they want to continue with video. I really wanted them to be video. I really wanted them to be as visual as possible, not just me talking to the camera. I wanted every word on screen, really cool animations. You know, we have three editors working full time on the video production with us at the moment. And we're looking to keep that up, actually, because if I had my way and we got things really organized, then I would have a lot more hours going into the YouTube, like the public facing content. And then we'd just get that, get the course content down to a fine art. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is we've been in the learning phase and things have taken longer. So I have been filming every week, one full day. And when I say full day, that doesn't mean I'm on camera for eight hours, I probably max out three to four hours is best. Hours five and six. I tend to get a bit, I sound a bit drunk. <laughs> my tongue comes out a bit further than it normally would. You know, my hair gets a bit messy. Um, I get like a sweaty upper lip. So I'm not looking my best by the end. <laughs> but yeah, so we've been doing that every week to try and get all of that course content done. Are you just showing up reading the teleprompter? Are you yes. seeing those curriculum meetings? Oh, so we work with a curriculum designer for all of our curriculums. Um, And that is a six-week process, six to 10. Um, And each week I meet up with her for two hours, focusing on one curriculum at a time. And she just pulls everything out of me that I want in this curriculum and she just makes it make sense. She's a very talented linguist herself, so it's the perfect partnership. Then our operations manager takes the curriculums. We do lots of talking and we decide which of our teachers would be best for certain parts. So in our latest course, we had a story running through all of the reading and listening activities. 
really, really cool. As in, we had this story through all these different mediums. So each week they receive two pieces of this story. So 24 pieces in total. And they might receive a WhatsApp audio note that tells part of the story. And there's like a proper WhatsApp audio note they can play. Or they might be sent an article in their newspaper and they have to read that. Or they'll see, they'll hear a radio interview and it's all part of this story. So we have one teacher wow. map out. We I write the storyboard and then they write all the content for that. And then from these stories, all of the grammar and vocabulary lessons are pulled and created. And so we like to have one teacher doing that. And then all of the other lessons like pronunciation, writing um, and conversation, they're written by other teachers. Then they go through various layers of proofreading. They all uh, proofread each other's work. Then it's adapted into an auto cue file or a teleprompter file for me. And then I sit down and record it. I'm very, very involved at the beginning, very, very involved at the end, but we've now got it to a stage where the middle part I don't have to be present for. Once I've mapped out the story, I've decided what the topic of the lesson is. They know my voice. They know how I like things to be written. They know the standard of proofreading. Um, That's the same deal for then the YouTube marketing videos in previous years where you're sitting down with the team and saying top 10 blankety blanks and then (laughs) you just show up and... (laughs) So YouTube used to be just me. I used to write all the scripts until 2021. And then as these teachers have got to know my voice and my style, um, I now have a big spreadsheet of all my YouTube ideas and general outlines of what I want the scripts to be. And then it goes off to them. They come up with a proposal, comes back to me. I approve it. Then they write the whole thing. It gets proofread. And then, yes, it arrives to me on an auto queue. So I'm working on taking myself out as much as possible without losing, hate to say it, but the Lucy touch, basically, the personal touch. Sure. Like I, I want it to be obviously me, not just me reading an auto cue. Also, I always read through the scripts before I read them, inject a lot of jokes, try and inject humor. And I do a lot of ad-libbing as well. I've got a remote control auto cue so I can pause when I want. And um, it's an amazing one, actually. It Here's my voice. So it moves on at my speed. But when I want to pause it, it's just below my desk. I pause it, ad lib, press play again. Then it all goes to the editors. They edit it. Um, It goes through the first edit with just a teacher reviewing it to make sure that it's all factually correct. Then it comes to me for any creative pointers. And then, yeah, the operations managers and teachers should make sure that there are no mistakes. And then, yeah, it uploads. We met each other at DCX London. It was a wonderful event and I laughed my way through your speech. It was so inspiring and funny and interesting. <laughs> and and then there was another speech by a gentleman named Rob Dix who yes. described a story of a business that was based around his nose for content. He He loves finding interesting ideas and publishing them. And he really struggled with this concept that what he had built was turning into a much more serious business. And he felt that he had to become the CEO. And he really struggled with that and ultimately decided that he was going to just remain a content personality, a content, have content habits. And if that was going to hurt the business in the long run, he was going to accept that outcome because of his passion for the content. Now, when I hear him saying that, I'm thinking, great call, great. Great strategic decision, Rob. But I can understand why he would feel that could really hurt the business to stay focused on content when there's all sorts of other opportunities. I'm really curious as to how you experienced that speech and what you thought its implications would be for your future. 
So firstly, that speech was right before my speech. So I was on high anxiety regardless. Because <laughs> <laughs> he also delivered it so bloody well that I was also thinking about my speech and like, oh, I can't believe I'm going after Rob. But I went through an emotional roller coaster during Rob's speech because I related to so much. And there were things that gave me like a visceral reaction. And then I drew back and I thought, no, I do like that. But my big problem is I started this off as a passion project, 2016, age 21. I had no idea what it was going to turn into. So I called it English with Lucy. I've made it a business I basically could never leave unless I really (laughs) did some work on it. I made it all about my face. So I've not really set myself up for this smooth exit or anything. And I don't really think that's what I see in, in my future. I never thought I would be a good boss. And I never thought I would enjoy being a CEO because I thought that I was quite unproductive. Um, But it turns out I wasn't unproductive. I was just unhappy. And so now I'm happy. I love what I do. I'm really proud of what we create. I find it extremely easy to be engaged with it. And it's so exciting. It might be because it's going very well as well. Maybe if it went badly, I'd feel differently. But at the moment, I'm, I'm quite happy to wear the CEO hat. A huge part of that is the fact that I'm working with Will. Will's your husband. Yes, Will's my husband. We work very well together. He's extremely laid back. They say opposites attract. (laughs) I think we attracted. I I wouldn't say I'm like uptight, but I'm definitely less laid back than Will. It would be strange if if, I'm sure the listeners will be scrolling through your YouTube channel. That sort of content output I don't think relates highly to a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know what I mean? Like there's an exactitude to creating content at that level, I think. It's not a laid back game. No, I think I'm more laid back than people would expect seeing how much I produce. Um, Because sometimes I do feel like a swan, you know, when they glide along above the surface and then underneath Mm -hmm. these legs are like flailing everywhere. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel like that. It takes me a while to get a process nailed. But then once I've nailed that process, I'm really good at keeping it going and keeping consistent. Before when it was just me, I had no one breathing down my neck. I had um, no one to let down really apart from myself. Now I've got a team. If I don't produce, if I don't film the correct amount of videos, my freelance editors don't have enough work. And that's not fair because they expect it. So having these responsibilities has really, really helped. I'm curious because... The concept was Rob decided, yo, I'm not going to run this business. I'm going to create content about real estate. And that's what only I can do. And that's what I'm going to do. And what I'm hearing you saying is there are these organizational responsibilities that it sounds like you found a fit in that appeal to you that maybe just hanging out and reading books, making videos, looking at other videos is you have your sight set on growth beyond that. Definitely. And one thing that we did, which is a really cool exercise, and I'm, we just came up with it, but I'm sure it's featured in some sort of book somewhere and it's an <laughs> actual thing. Um, but Will and I, at the beginning, after a couple of months of running the business and starting it as it is today um, and releasing our first challenges, we were feeling overwhelmed and like we couldn't keep up with everything. And we made an Excel spreadsheet of every task that we do on a regular basis and then we color coded it into what that consists of, whether it's admin, whether it's 
YouTube creation, video editing, all of these different things. Then we made a new column saying what we'd ideally like to do in the near future, and then dream situation. And we noticed that all of the operations stuff was not in our dream section. We immediately got wow. rid of that, even in the new f- near future. And so at that point, we were like, we don't just need, because we were looking to hire a VA, and we suddenly realized, we don't need a VA, we need an operations manager. That's really cool. I, you know what? I haven't heard anybody put it exactly like that. So we're going to have to name it after you guys. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. The Lucy Will spreadsheet experiment. So we'll, we'll work. We'll, we'll make it snappy. Don't worry. There will be a cool like acronym <laughs> or something you can do. Initialism. Yeah, we did it like that. And we noticed we just don't want any of the operation stuff. We're not particularly organized people. I have to work very, very hard to keep everything very organized. It doesn't come naturally. I'm not someone who like takes off my socks and places them somewhere. Like they both go in two different directions. You know what I mean? (laughs) So we have to work very hard. So we need someone that thrives on that stuff. Like we need a a type A person. Um, So we initially went to hire um, a project coordinator to manage the production of one course in particular. And she was so damn good that we then very quickly moved her on and said, look, would you like to go into a more a managerial role and she went for it she was like I think I'm really underqualified but it's like we're all learning together and she's been awesome so she runs all of that now and yeah that exercise just made us realize about what we want to keep doing ourselves as well Will really likes doing the numbers and tracking he loves having that touch point with exactly how the business is doing and at first his first reaction after learning how to track KPIs was I can't wait to automate this but then Shortly after that, he um, he realized if I automate this, I will stop seeing all these anomalies and I'll stop noticing all these interesting little quirks of, of things that have worked and I'll stop learning so much about the numbers as I do them. So he's decided he definitely wants to keep them himself. And for me, um, coming up with script ideas, there was a time where I asked one of our teachers to come up with script ideas and map them out and I wasn't happy. He did a great job. But I felt like my content plan lost its pizzazz. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I wasn't I as that. happy with it. And so I keep that. Final question for you, Lucy. This one I've never asked before. Maybe it's a weird one. So the Lucy that just got the five-figure deal that just started the YouTube channel, call it the first, when you just got to a million subscribers... You're back to that, Lucy, and you sort of walk into a bar and you're at the bar. You're meeting yourself at a bar. That's the setup, but the age difference. And I'm curious, what do you want to tell the earlier, Lucy, if you could be your own business coach with the advantage of time? That's the setup. We don't need a bar. We don't need all the age. You get the point. The point is, is what do you want to tell yourself when you just got started about this journey that would be useful? Oh, wow. I don't know how much to tell her because I don't want her to get cocky and then not work as hard. (laughs) 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 So I'll be be selective because I know myself that's probably what I would do. However, if that's not a risk, then maybe I would say don't underestimate how well you and Will will work together because that was one of our biggest worries was, you know, we were protective over our relationship. It was in one week, we left the farm, 
completed on our house, got married all in one week. And start, I bought my business partner, my old business partner out of the business and we started working together. And so many people, when I explained that plan to people, they said, you are insane. Like that's far too much. It's far too much pressure in a relationship. But, you know, we trusted our instinct. That's another big thing. I'd say trust your instinct because I think instinct has been huge in all of this. And whatever you're feeling is an indication of something bigger. So if you're feeling FOMO, it's probably because you've underperformed or you've made some bad decisions. If you're feeling anxiety about being cancelled or something like that, it's probably because you're not that proud of the content you've put out recently. You know, that's, it's always a symptom of something bigger. So really try and listen to exactly how you're feeling and, and try and pinpoint what that is. Because there was a time that I was doing way too much content to please the algorithm. I just wanted to go viral and then the quality went down. I was called out for it. And each time I was uploading a video, I was think, I was feeling like, oh, I think it's going to go viral, but is it is it right? And yeah, people didn't like it in the end. I'd also say talk to as many other creators as you can. And the risk of oversharing is way smaller than the than what you will miss out on by undersharing, I think. You know, be open with figures. Tell your competition what you're making. <laughs> That's not necessarily advice I'd give to everyone, but being really, really open with other English teachers on YouTube and English course creators made me realize where I was underperforming, where I'm really strong. And by sharing information, we've just managed, there's enough pie for everyone. Other things I would say, focus on quality of the courses because you want to make them once. You don't want to make them more than once. They're expensive, they're time consuming, they're tiring. If you do it well and invest financially and time-wise, you will reap the rewards. I'm really glad I asked. What a great answer. Lucy, what a lovely question. <laughs> Lucy, thank you for uh, joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.